Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn in them to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. As you know, for the past few months, we've been making our way through selected psalms in the Psalter as an overview of some of the significant psalms that we not only uh, read about, but psalms that we sing during our corporate worship services. And so this morning we come to Psalm 130. Now this psalm is one of seven penitential psalms, or psalms of confession. You may remember that we already considered two of these psalms of confession in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And now we come to Psalm 130. And these psalms also are sometimes psalms that we recite together during our corporate prayer of confession. So please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word for us this morning. Psalm 130. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. For the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. <clears throat> Merciful Father, we thank you for your word and that you have not remained hidden. And as we turn now to hear what you have for us here in this psalm, we pray that we would not merely hear or read this psalm, but that we would inwardly digest these holy scriptures for the sake of our edification and nourishment as we continue on as a pilgrim people in this present evil age. We ask all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now, whenever we come to a particular passage of Scripture, we need to realize that we are not the first individuals to read or consider that passage of Scripture. We stand upon the shoulders of many Christians who have gone before us, who have looked to the Scriptures as a source of comfort and instruction. And so it is with Psalm 130. The great reformer Martin Luther was very familiar with this psalm. In fact, Luther described this psalm as a Pauline psalm, meaning that when you read Psalm 130, it sounds as if the Apostle Paul could have written it. Now, of course, that is not the case, but what, what was the Apostle Paul known for? Well, he was known for distinguishing between the law and the gospel. The law is that the means by which we come to a conscious, a conscious recognition of our sin 
and our misery before the judgment seat of God, while the gospel justifies sinners apart from their works. We see these elements present in Psalm 130. In fact, this, this Pauline psalm, which the Apostle Paul may have been familiar with and may have influenced him as well, this Pauline psalm was so influential on Luther that he actually composed a hymn based on this psalm. When you read this psalm, you can see why this psalm would have resonated so much with this great reformer as he was transitioning between the medieval system of penance and the great reformational doctrine of justification by faith alone. In fact, from 1513 to 1519, Luther, as a newly minted professor at the University of Wittenberg, lectured through many books of the Bible, verse by verse, to his divinity students. And during this time, he lectured through the Psalms twice, along with Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. So we don't know for sure, but God may have used Psalm 130, which Luther would have uh, lectured on twice, in conjunction with the Pauline epistles as a prod to bring Luther to Reformation. And so when we consider Psalm 130, we do so standing upon the shoulders of, of Luther and even the Apostle Paul. However, you will notice that this psalm has a title enjoined to it, a psalm of ascent. This psalm is part of a larger collection of psalms that um, were used by the Old Testament people of God as they would make their pilgrimages to the holy city of Jerusalem during Israel's annual feast days. They would recite, chant, and even sing these psalms as they would journey to the Jerusalem temple. This psalm then is part of uh, this collection of psalms, which includes Psalms 120 to 134, which are labeled the Psalm of Ascent, or Psalm of Ascent. And so, as we consider this psalm, Psalm 130, we do so standing upon the shoulders of scores of Jewish Christians who knew this psalm very, very well in not just a theoretical way, but in a very practical and experiential way as they would recite, sing, chant this psalm en route to the holy city of Jerusalem. And so as we consider this psalm standing upon the shoulders of, of these great individuals who've gone before us, you'll notice two great themes that are present here in this psalm. The psalmist speaks of the depths, the depths of despair. This is a reference to being at the very bottom of the ocean or the sea. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor that the psalmist is using to describe his state of being in, a state of being in his sins, dead in his sins. Now, God's deliverance from our sins by the grace of God is really the very opposite of being at the bottom of the sea. You can think of this as being akin to enjoying a scenic view from the heights of a great mountain. And so we see here both the depths of despair and the heights of God's deliverance. Now, two common pitfalls that 
that we see in the broader church, not only today, but, but also historically speaking, when it comes to their liturgics, that is to say, how, how they do church, how they do their worship services, is on the one hand, worship services can oftentimes feel like taking a hike in Nebraska or Kansas. It's a flat terrain. There's no elevation one way or the other. There's no real good news, but there's also no real bad news. It's just flat. Or the other uh, pitfall is the church service feels like scuba diving at the bottom of the ocean. It's all law. It's all bad news. And there really is no gospel, no good news. And therefore, one of the recoveries of the Reformation was liturgical drama. And by this, I do not mean that the Reformation sought to add dramatic performances as an element of the church's liturgy, but rather the liturgies of the Reformation sought to retell the drama of Scripture. And so, one thing you'll notice in our liturgy is that our liturgy seeks to, to plummet us into the depths of despair as we are reminded of what it means to be in Adam but it also assures us of the heights of God's deliverance as we are those who, by faith, are in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to consider those two elements of this psalm, the depths of despair and the heights of God's deliverance as we stand upon the shoulders of those people who have gone before us. Well, you'll notice in verse 1, the psalmist says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. As I mentioned, this phrase, the depths, denotes the image of being tossed into the very heart of the sea. Jonah, as he is experiencing life in the belly of the fish, prays in chapter 2, verse 3. He says, For you, O God, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Jonah was in the deep, as he literally was in the heart of the sea. Well, this is a metaphor, of course, that the psalmist is employing. It's a metaphor for near despair, emotional crisis, spiritual distress. It's a metaphor for feeling alienated from God himself. Verses 3 and 4 seem to suggest that this despair comes from the psalmist's experience of the guilt of his own sin. Now, boys and girls, imagine, imagine being stranded in the middle of the ocean, drowning, sinking. can't probably think of a more terrifying experience. Well, that is just a faint picture, shadow, mirage of, of what it is to be alienated outside of the family of God. And the psalmist is in this place in the beginning of Psalm 130. Now, this phrase and the psalm as a whole won't make much sense to us or to your average affluent American without a right understanding of the law of God. I've said before that uh, John Calvin would uh, referred to God's law as a mirror insofar as it exposes our guilt and our sin before God's divine judgment. If you were to ask the average middle class American who has no formal relationship to Christ or his church and whose life is going generally speaking, pretty well. If you were to ask this individual to describe his or her life, I would imagine you would not hear a response 
that he or she feels as if they're in, uh, stranded in the middle of the ocean, drowning, and can't get any air. My life seems to be going pretty well. Now, what God's law does, it comes to us and exposes our house of cards. It, it, it gives us a glimpse into objective reality. Now, imagine you're in a social setting and you're socializing, talking, laughing. You leave the social setting and you look at yourself in the mirror and you see that you have a big piece of food in the middle, in between your two front teeth. And all of a sudden, this feeling of embarrassment floods over you as you now have a glimpse of how you appeared before everyone with whom you interacted with. That's what God's law does to us. It gives us a glimpse of objective reality, of how we appear according to God's just standard. We live naturally as if there's nothing in our teeth when, in, in effect, there's food all over. So God's law gives us a glimpse into objective reality, how we truly appear before God's justice. And when we begin to get a glimpse into this objective reality, we should feel as the psalmist feels in this psalm. We should feel as if we're in the, the depths, the deeps. As we consider our sin, our misery, and our guilt before God's divine judgment. And liturgically speaking, this is what we are seeking to do as we read the law of God. We're seeking to expose us in our sin and who we truly are and to humble ourselves before God's divine majesty. Now, in, in addition to, to God's law, the Lord also uses what could be described as circumstantial poverty, difficult things that come into our lives that are a result of our own sin, a result of other people's sin, or the result of just living in a fallen world. The Lord can use circumstantial poverty to humble us to place us in the deep and cause us to cry out to him as the author of creation, providence, and most importantly, redemption. Well, what does the psalmist do in the depths? We'll notice in verses 1 and 2 that he cries out. He cries, he doesn't climb. He cries, he doesn't try to swim out of the heart of the sea. He realizes he cannot get himself out of this predicament that he is in. And thus he cries out. He throws himself upon the mercies of his covenant Lord. And so in verse 3a, the psalmist says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? You have to ask yourself, stand where? Well, stand before God's judgment. Who could stand blameless before God's judgment if you, O Lord, would keep a tally of our sins? Consider what the Apostle Paul says at the, Roman, at the end of Romans chapter 3 when he says that the law speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and that the whole world might be held accountable to God. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The psalmist is saying that if the Lord kept a tally, a record of his sins, there would be no way to be in the presence of God's divine majesty. There's no way that the psalmist could sufficiently confess his sins. There's no way the psalmist could do enough acts of penance or contrition to make 
those sins go away. And this is why the psalmist is crying out to the Lord, the Lord of all mercy. And so here the psalmist is experiencing the depths of despair. It's good for us to be reminded, even though we are in Christ, it's good for us to be reminded of what it, what it means to be an Adam, who we used to be. The psalmist here also speaks about the heights of deliverance. You'll notice in verse 4, the psalmist knows that forgiveness, forgiveness is found in his covenant Lord, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The psalmist then goes on to, to talk about how he is waiting and even hoping for the Lord and the fullness of this divine forgiveness. He describes himself as a watchman, a watchman who is standing guard at night waiting for the morning. Now, in, in, in Jerusalem, there were watchmen who would guard the city at night, and one thing that was true of every watchman is that they were certain that the morning would come. It wouldn't stay night forever. The morning would come. There would be an end to their shift. And in a world without caffeine, they were probably longing for that sun to rise so they could be off their shift. And the psalmist is describing his hope through the use of this metaphor. So the psalmist is looking towards the fullness of God's forgiveness with certainty. The same certainty that the watchman had for the, sun, for the sunrise at dawn. But the psalmist also is looking to the Lord's forgiveness with longing. With longing as he desires to experience uh, this mercy from his covenant God. Now you may ask, well why is the psalmist speaking about the Lord's forgiveness in the future? He describes this virtue of hope, this, this idea of waiting. Waiting for the Lord's forgiveness and mercy. You see in verse 8, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Future, future oriented. Well, no doubt the psalmist did experience the forgiveness of sins as he, as, uh, as a pilgrim and as the subsequent pilgrims would make their way to that Jerusalem temple and as they would witness the animal sacrifices being um, uh, 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 accomplished on their behalf in that temple, they would have been assured in a powerful way that their sins were forgiven. Imagine being able to, to literally hear a bleeding sheep and seeing that the throat of that bleeding uh, sheep slit for your sins. It's a powerful way to be assured that your sins are forgiven. Or think of the Day of Atonement, the highlight of the Jewish calendar, when the high priest would take a goat and confess, and the high priest would lay his hands upon that goat and confess upon that goat all of the sins of the people of God. And that goat then would be, would be driven out into the wilderness to bear the guilt of the people's sins in the wilderness. So imagine you're an Old Testament Israelite and you're dealing with a particular sin and you're struggling and your conscience is plagued with that sin. You could literally see your sins, that particular sin that's plaguing your conscience, move out of sight in the horizon as it, that goat bears your sins in the wilderness. So we have to realize that the psalmist did experience the forgiveness of sins through the types and shadows of the Old Testament. 
However, listen to what the author of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 and 4, or 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. One thing that was true in the Old Testament sacrificial system is that the sacrifices needed to be offered continually. Over and over again, there was always work for the priest to do. And so these sacrifices only had meaning insofar as they pointed the people to Christ ahead of time. As they pointed the people to Christ's sacrifice ahead of time. But in themselves, they were powerless. In themselves, they were unable to take away sins. In a way that's similar to how our sacraments today operate. Baptism in and of itself, detached from Christ and his Holy Spirit, is just water powerless to bring about any sort of grace in, in the hearts and lives of God's covenant people. And so the blood of bulls and goats were preparation for the blood of Christ. The psalmist is, in one sense, experiencing the forgiveness of sins, the types and shadows of the Old Testament, but he also is looking forward with hope and expectation for the fullness of this forgiveness that would dawn with the coming of Christ. And congregation, we, we live in the reality of what the psalmist was hoping for. We have and do experience the full forgiveness of our sins through the one final and definitive sacrifice of Christ on the cross. We can be assured that all of our sins, our past, present, and even our future sins, have been completely atoned for, and God's wrath is abated towards every single one of those sins because of Jesus' shed blood on that cross. And so when you think about how powerful it would have been to be that Old Testament Israelite on the Day of Atonement, to literally see your sins fade in, into the distance, out of sight, we have something, we have an experience that's much greater in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. In the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we, we don't have a goat that is present. We have Christ himself who is present. And he assures us through his own flesh and blood that he really did bear God's wrath for our sins. The sins that you presently are struggling with. The sins that your conscience is accusing you of. Christ has sustained God's wrath for those sins. That's what we experience. That's what we're assured of in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And though we live in this age of fulfillment, we too are called to be watchmen, watchmen in the night, as we live in the tension between these two advents of our Lord Jesus Christ. Consider what the Apostle Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, where he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So though we look back to that first coming of Christ, a uh, first coming that not only has brought salvation for all people, but also is training us, training us in how to live a life of grateful obedience, we also are called to wait, wait for our blessed hope. And so, congregation of Christ, let us be watchmen in the night of this present evil age, longing with certain hope for the dawn 